In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Eli Canal. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him at his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on it. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But then he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. 
and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Let's pray. God, as we established last week, many Christians are tempted to read a chapter like that and to drive by it quickly and move on. And yet, Lord, we do so to our own misunderstanding and robbing ourselves of what you want to say to us. And Lord, as we also saw last week, prophecy, though difficult and certainly debated, also is more clear if we will just dig a little bit and rightly understand what you have revealed within its historical context and throughout history. So God, as we unpack this chapter now, in this series that we're in, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you help us to understand it rightly? And Lord, as you do, would you then give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply these things diligently in our lives? And our commitment back, Lord, is that we will do what you say. We're faithful followers, and we desire to be uh, obedient and trusting of you for the things that you reveal. So reveal, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. And so it's 550 B.C. for the nation Israel, and things are finally starting to look up for them. If you know anything about Jewish history, you know that up to this point in their history, they've had a really tough 150 years before this time. The Assyrians took them captive in about 720 B.C., and then they had the Babylonian captivity about a half a century before this time. They've seen their sacred city, Jerusalem, ransacked, their temple desecrated and destroyed. They'd lost their homes, their businesses, their land, and most all of their pride. The only thing that had kept the nation Israel going during this time had been a little bit of glimmer of hope given to them by prophets like Jeremiah and Daniel and the like that someday God was going to come through and bring redemption and deliverance to his people once again. And as I mentioned, now it's looking like they just might be turning the corner here uh, in this chapter. Cyrus of the Persians is gaining power. It's looking like he's going to become king and even defeat the Babylonians who have held them captive. And if and when he becomes king, there was talk that he'd even allow them to return to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the city, the temple, and their lives. And Daniel is now about 70 years old. And he spent most of all of his adult life in captivity in Babylon. And he's been having these God-given wild dreams. He's not alone. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets that were very godly men also had dreams of what was to come and visions. And in these dreams and visions, they saw that, yes, there was going to be continued secular power warring against Israel. But in the midst of that, God would also be moving, that God would also provide deliverance because he still had his hand upon his people. And also in these visions, they saw redemption coming someday through Israel, redemption even to the whole world. 
And in hindsight, you and I now, what a lot, now, now know what a lot of those visions and dreams were about. They were of the coming Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and 11 and other places of Jesus who would be born a Jew, reveal himself as God, and then provide a pathway for anyone who believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life, a pathway to God. And as we saw last week, Daniel's current set of visions, beginning here in chapter 7, primarily span the next four or five hundred years of Israel's history in the Middle East there, up until the time of Christ. And then Daniel even saw visions looking way ahead to the end of time as to what is also going to be. And we unpacked that a little bit last week. And just by way of quick review so that we get what's going on here in chapter 8, give me a click here, Kurt. Don't forget that Daniel saw a vision of the next four nations that would be uh, in play around Israel at that time. He saw the Babylonians who would soon be defeated and become a bad memory for Israel. He saw the Medo-Persian Empire that would arise next and allow Israel to return to her homeland and begin rebuilding the temple and the city. He saw the Greeks who would rival Babylon and their persecution of the Jews. And finally, if you remember last week, he saw the powerful Roman Empire, the empire and culture that would see Jesus come into the world and provide salvation for all who would follow and trust in him. And so with this quick background laid out, folks, you might now begin to see why Daniel 8 is not as complicated as it might seem at first in trying to understand again what Daniel is prophesying and predicting. In verses 1 through 8, he sees two animals, a ram and a goat, symbolizing two coming nations over the next 400 years in the Middle East back then, the Medo-Persian Empire that would exist from 559 to 331 BC, and then the Greek Empire that would exist from 336 till about 146 BC. And as Daniel describes the Medo-Persian Empire, the ram there in verses 3 and 4, what I simply want you to note, and this is so worth our time here this morning, is the accuracy of his prophecy. I mean, he just nails it. This ram has two horns with one bigger than the other. The Medo-Persian Empire, we know, was the union of two empires at that time, Media and Persia, but very quickly Persia became the dominant one, thus one bigger horn. And Daniel saw this ram charge to the west and to the north and then to the south. We know from our understanding of secular history at that time that the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, Syria, and Asia Minor to the west, Armenia and Scythia to the north, and then Egypt and Ethiopia to the south. And so please see, with pinpoint accuracy, decades, even centuries before these events took place, Daniel nails it in his vision given to him by God. It's what prophecy is all about, and it's all over the Bible. And then in verses 5 through 8, with clarification from the angel in verses 21 and 22, Daniel describes the goat, the Greek empire, and again, with amazing accuracy. I mean, picture what he saw, folks. He sees this goat that's literally flying across the ground without its feet at all touching out from the west, and it crushes the ram with one big horn between its eyes. It just destroys this ram. It then becomes exceedingly great, and at the height of its greatness, this horn is broken, and in its place grow four smaller horns. It's Alexander the Great 
the famous leader of the Greek Empire, a student of Aristotle, who with amazing speed and power literally crushed the nations around him. He crushed Babylon and everything else in its path. In fact, when it was finally done, by the time he was 33 years old, he had conquered over 1.5 million square miles of land with no tanks, no artillery, no planes. None of that was invented by then. Just with horses and chariots, he was the greatest known military leader of his time. And again, Daniel sees this coming. Daniel even sees the fact that he would fall. At the age of 33, he got a fever and died of like malaria, they think, which is like a bummer way to go out for a military conqueror like that. And his four generals, the four small horns, are the ones who took up his kingdom. And again, hundreds of years before any of this took place, Daniel predicted it in the visions from God. And yet, if you're tracking with me, and I know this is historical, you know that the things that we just went over there in the first part of 8 here is kind of review from Daniel 7. It's a repeat of the vision Daniel had gotten three years earlier in chapter 7. But now, next in chapter 8, comes the new stuff. In verses 9 through 12, again with Cliff Notes help from the angel in verses 23 to 25, Daniel sees a little horn coming out of the four horns, and it describes this little horn as exceedingly great. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I thought, ooh, exceedingly great. It must be Jesus. This is going to be good. It's not Jesus, and it's not good. In fact, as you read on, and we read it for you earlier, this this little horn is moving toward the glorious land which obviously refers to Israel and Jerusalem and it's so powerful that it figuratively throws stars to the ground and even messes with the sacrificial system of God in the temple to in Israel it then throws truth to the ground it sees itself on par with the prince of hosts which most Bible experts see to referring to God and then in verses 23 to 25, the angel reveals that this little horn is actually going to be a ruler within the Greek empire who's going to be a master at political manipulation. He's going to understand riddles. He'll bring fearful destruction upon God's people, so going so far as to destroy many, even bring down many men and saints, it says. He's going to be a legend in his own mind, a bold-faced king, the angel says. And he's going to be a real pain for the Jewish people at that time, empowered not by his own strength, but by the strength of Satan himself. And those scholars somewhat debate precisely who is being talked about here. The vast majority of them understand who this is. And this was actually the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire, a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Somebody who was a very powerful ruler from about 170 to 164 B.C. And he brought incredible persecution upon the Jewish people. He's a man rooted in history as real as any other figure of his day. And yet like so many secular rulers who read their own press releases, this guy was obsessed with his own power even to the point of seeing himself on par with God himself and he hated the Jews. You know, one of the things that uh, we're blessed with here at Scottsdale Bible is that we have a wonderful informal relationship with Phoenix Seminary. Daryl, our pastor emeritus, is the president over there. Many of their teachers attend here at the church, and they're our Sunday school teachers. We're really blessed to have them. 
And the head of the Old Testament department there, Dr. Paul Wagner, has been a great help to me uh, in this study of Daniel. And as Paul and I were talking this week about Antiochus, this uh, Seleucid empire that was bringing all the persecution on the Jews, Paul shared with me that we actually know a lot about this dude from history. And look up here on the screen, Paul actually sent me uh, a copy of some coins that he has in his private collection from the 2nd century BC that Antiochus had minted with his own image on the coin. And then interestingly, when you turn the coin over, there's some writing, and obviously I can't read it, but Paul interpreted it for me, and the writing says, God manifest. Isn't that interesting? God manifest. But when Paul shared that with me, I thought, you know, we got quarters today that say, in God we trust. That's kind of cool. I mean, that's an awesome uh, thing about our nation. In God we trust. Antiochus was so obsessed with his own leadership, he put on his coins, God manifest. I am God appearing to you, he said. This guy was just insane, and again, he didn't like the Jewish people at all. We'll get more to that in just a minute. And yet, this, in this prophecy, it ends there in chapter 8 by saying in verse 25 that though there's going to be some persecution on the Jews, at the end of the day, and I quote, he, Antiochus, shall be broken, but by no human hand, meaning God. In other words, this persecution will have an end to it. Even this terrible time for the Jews, will be, God will come in and defeat the, uh, the, the guys that are bringing the tribulation on them, and it will be God's doing. And so this is the prophecy, folks, in Daniel 8. This is what it's laying out here. Two animals representing two nations, lots of details about those nations, a ruler that will come that bring great, terrible tribulation upon Israel, but eventually will be defeated. Now, go back to where we started a few minutes ago. It's 550 B.C. when this prophecy is revealed to Daniel by God. And as I said, things were starting to look up. Captivity is now looking behind them. Cyrus is going to become king. He's going to go back to their promised land and rebuild everything. And Daniel is letting them know here in this prophecy, don't miss this, that though God is still very much in their present, and that though God is still very much going to be in their future, and even in their immediate future as things are looking up, that tribulation and trouble are still going to be a staple in this fallen world, and even God's people are not going to be immune to it. That's the vision Daniel gives them here. And so as far as I see it, here is our main point then for you and me this morning. We're going to unpack this in our time remaining. Look up here on the screen. It's simply this, that God's people then are going to consistently go from triumph to tribulation to victory, and through it all, we need to endure or persevere. I think that's the message of Daniel 8, once you understand what's going on here. That God's people, and you'll see in a minute, this includes you and I significantly, will go at times from triumph to tribulation and back to victory. And that God's goal for us in all of it is to learn to be people who know how to persevere and endure. Now folks, in order to more fully get what this main point from Daniel 8 is about, I want to show you a fairly clear pattern or progression that takes place in the life of Israel here. And then I'm going to show you how this progression or pattern affects you and me today. 
So first, look up here on the screen and notice with me how the prophecy that Daniel gives in chapter 8, which came true over the next 400 years, takes them through kind of a roller coaster ride of progression that takes them from triumph to tribulation to endurance to an ultimate point of victory. That's what you see when you look closely here at Daniel 8. First, notice with me that it all begins with them in a state of triumph. This is verses 1 through 4 and then verse 20 when it says, As for the ram that they saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And as we've already established, this is simply the time of peace that is coming upon them. Then if you go on and read the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see it spelled out that they get to go home to their homeland and then they get to see God move and they rebuild the walls and they rebuild the temple. And I mean, it's just a wonderful, glorious time for Israel. Please note, it's a time of triumph for them. That's how the vision begins here in Daniel chapter 8. But then notice, coming down the pike very quickly is the second leg of this progression in this vision, and that's tribulation. It's Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And I didn't give you the gory details earlier. I'm going to give them to you now because I think it's really important that we unpack this. But look at verses 24, 11, and then 12, and notice the description of the prophecy. And I'm going to share with you how this came true. It says in verse 24 that there is fearful destruction. Then in verse 11 that the regular burnt offering was taken away and the sanctuary overthrown. And then in verse 12 that he threw truth to the ground. When it says there in verse 24 that there is fearful destruction, that all began in 170 B.C. In 170 B.C., the high priest at that time, Onias III, was assassinated, most likely by Antiochus, and that started a snowball effect of persecution upon the Jews in which, get this, over the next six years, 80,000 Jews lost their lives. 80,000 people back then, 2,200 years ago, lost their lives based upon persecution upon them, upon the nation Israel at that time. It was fearful destruction. And, and then in verse 11 there, where it says that the regular burnt offering was taken away and the sanctuary was overthrown, this happened in 167 B.C., three years after the start of all of this. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know the, sanct the temple was the place where God made his appearance, where he was manifest to the Jews. And in the Holy of Holies, once a year, the high priest would go in there and make atonement for behalf of the people. It was how forgiveness was found. It was, God, it was where God would meet them and provide forgiveness. Antiochus hated the Jews so much that not only did he ransack the temple, but he went into the Holy of Holies. He took the altar and he placed a statue of Zeus on the altar, saying that there is no God. Zeus is the God. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. If you know anything about Old Testament sacrificial system, that was an abomination before God's eyes. It was Antiochus' way of saying that your whole sacrificial system is now over. Your whole access to God is now stopped. And then in verse 12, when it says that he threw truth to the ground, he literally did that. He took the law and he destroyed it. And he abolished the Mosaic law at that time, saying that it is no more. I mean, it was six difficult years from the life of the Jews. Daniel predicted this was co would come. It was tribulation time for them. And this called for the next step in the progression. And we're going to unpack this more in a minute for you and I, the endurance phase. 
You know, as I've been studying Daniel for the last uh, year or so, and I got to chapter 8, two of my favorite verses are verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read them for you right now. You'll see why. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And I love that question because all of us have asked it at certain times when we're struggling, how long, right? And notice here that it's the angels asking that question. Isn't that amazing? The angels who are watching with bated breath, all that are going on with God's people are saying, God, this is awful what's going on in their lives. How long is this going to go on? And the answer given initially threw me when I was doing my study, 2,300 mornings and evenings. Like, what's that about? And to make it even more complicated, the commentators actually bicker back and forth and argue, is this 2,300 full days, or is it 2,300 mornings plus evenings, meaning 1,150 mornings and 1,150 days? I kid you not, like they take space, volumes, discussing that issue. And it is kind of important because it's the difference between three years and six years. And so for them, if it's a six-year tribulation, it began in 170 with the assassination of Onias III. Or if it's three years, it began in 167 B.C. with the desecration of the temple. As you'll see in a second, this all ended in 164. But I didn't care about any of that, to be honest with you. What I cared about was the fact that they were asking the question, how long? And here's what hit me, as anybody who asks that question is, is, or, uh, does, is that it belies the reality that when we ask how long, we're obviously in a persevering and enduring mode. Amen? I mean, that's true. Any of you ask the question, how long? Reveal right there that you're enduring something. You're persevering in your life. And so when the angels ask, how long? Don't miss this. It shows that the Jews were persevering during that time, that endurance was the name of the game. And that God is in control. He knows how long, but their job was to persevere. And the Jewish people did. And by the way, they always have. Now hang on to that. This eventually led to victory. We read in verse 25, that it says, and he, obviously referring to Antiochus, shall be broken, but by no human hand, which means God. And isn't it interesting that in 164, God had lifted up a leader known as Judas Maccabee, who led the Maccabean revolt, and he eventually won over Antiochus. He cleansed and rededicated the temple on December 14th, 164 B.C., and ever since then, the Jews have celebrated an event every year that many of us are familiar with, and it's right here in Daniel. It's the event of Hanukkah. If you've ever wondered what Hanukkah is about, Hanukkah simply means to dedicate, and it celebrates the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean revolt that brought the Jews out of this terrible time of persecution here in December of 164 B.C. It was truly a time of victory for them. God's in the habit of doing that. And so, folks, this is the pattern or the progression that we see in Daniel 8. It's the pattern laid out in Daniel's prophecy. It's a progression that became true for them. Triumph, tribulation, endurance, victory. And the only question that I want you and I to wrestle with in the time we have remaining this morning is what does that have to do with you and I today? 
How does this apply to you and me today? And to answer the question, I want you to look up here on the screen and follow along as I read a quote from John Calvin, of all places, the great Protestant reformer, that's right out of his commentary on Daniel 8 as he sees the connection between what they went through and you and me today. This is really life-giving. Look up here on the screen. He says, and at this day, this prophecy is useful to us lest our courage should fail us in the extreme calamity of the church, because now here it is, a perpetual representation of the church is depicted for us under that calamitous and mournful state. Although God often spares our infirmities, yet the church is never free from many distresses, and unless we are prepared to undergo all contests, we shall never stand firm in the faith. I kind of latched on the last few weeks, to that phrase, perpetual representation. A perpetual representation of the church, he says, is depicted for us. And folks, I think that's what Daniel 8 is all about. As I said earlier, it's a progression. It's a pattern laid out, but not just for the Jewish people, not just for the Old Testament saints, but also for all of us who are followers of God, even in this New Testament time. It's something that is there for all of us. Unless you have any doubt of this, isn't it interesting that when you get to the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, as the New Testament church is finding its way in following Jesus' as Savior, that they describe and write about the exact same pattern or progression that Daniel outlines here in his prophecy in chapter 8. In other words, don't miss this. What we see being prophesied in Daniel 8 here in, in Daniel, when what we see coming true over the next 400 years is precisely the same pattern that you find in the New Testament when it talks about what yours and my journey is going to be as we follow Almighty God. And so I think in a very real way this prophecy touches you and I today as we learn what it's like to follow God in this fallen world of ours. Let me show you what I mean using some New Testament passages, and I, I think you'll get this. I think you're going to like this. Notice that just like they did back then in 550 B.C., you and I also have as a starting place a point of triumph. We have as our starting place a point of triumph. In other words, if you can picture the Christian life as sort of a race and you and I are in the starting blocks, God says the moment that you come out of those blocks, you're a winner you've already experienced a certain level of triumph. What's he talking about? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55. It says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In other words, because of Christ's resurrection, you and I got victory over the grave. Death is not the end. We know where we're going. It's much better than this dump. And yet it's not just the other side that we look forward to. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Isn't this cool? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, now get this, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I got to tell you, years ago when I saw that pastor, I thought, my gosh, can that be true? Can that word every really mean every? So I looked it up in the Greek, and you know what it literally means? Every. It means every. It's saying that in Christ, you have been given every spiritual blessing God could give you 
to live life this side of heaven. Is that not cool? Is that not a place of triumph? Peter and Paul would be so excited about this that they'd write about it later in their epistles. And at one point, he'd say, everything that you need for life and godliness, you got right now in your spiritual life. Everything that you need for life and godliness. Make no mistake, folks. The Christian life is described as a triumph right from the get-go because of what Jesus has done for you and I and what he has empowered us to do. But we're winners just coming out of the starting blocks. And so like the Old Testament saints back in 550 B.C., just about ready to rebuild their lives, you and I are in a perpetual state of triumph. And it's just the nature of the Christian life. I had an experience about a, a month and a half, two months ago, that shocked me, and then as I reflected on it, it shouldn't have shocked me at all. I got a call or an email uh, when I was sitting at my desk at home one night from a dear friend in the church here who was on an extended vacation with his wife and they just realized that she had a pretty sizable brain tumor. So they flew back to the States here and they did an immediate operation over on the East Coast and as they biopsied this brain tumor, they found out it was the most aggressive form of brain tumor you can get. And they've given her about a year to live. And obviously it was a huge shock to them and, and a real bummer. She's only 49 years old. He's just in his early 50s. And so they came back here to Phoenix. When they got home, I went to visit them at their home. And as I was driving over, I had no idea what to expect. And when I got to their, their house there and went in and chatted with them, it was small talk at first. And then we got down to sort of the more serious stuff. And as we were talking about the cancer and the life expectancy and the state of their lives, they have two grown children and all of that, at one point this gal looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She looked at me and said, Jamie, I just got to let you know something. She said, I got no regrets, no resent, and I have full trust in God through all of this. She goes, I have lived 49 long years. I've been blessed more than most people ever will. I got a great husband. I got two beautiful daughters. I've been able to see parts of the world that nobody could ever see. And most importantly, I know Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. And when I die, I know where I'm going. She said, so as far as you need to know, I'm doing just fine and I'm okay. I was driving back to the office here and I thought, wow, that blows me away. I don't hear too many 49-year-olds say I'm okay with my impending death. And yet as I thought about it more, then I thought, why should that blow me away? I mean, that's the normal Christian life that I experienced there. That's somebody who's living in a place of triumph, very real, that knows her blessing. She knows her Savior. Like Paul the Apostle, she knows to live as Christ, to die is gain. And she's known it for so long that she's experiencing it now in her soul, even during a very difficult time. You guys do that to me on a regular basis. You remind me through your actions that we live in a place of triumph and that those we're going to see in a second here, life can throw some curveballs. We always begin. That's how God started us, in a place of triumph. And yet that doesn't make us immune to the next step of progression, and that's tribulation. Look at what Jesus taught us. Look at John 14, verse 33. He said, in the world you will have, here it is, tribulation. Peter wrote to the same audience, I think this is hilarious, something very similar. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you're also going to rejoice and be glad when his glory is be, being revealed. So what, what are Jesus and Peter saying? They're saying that as much as we have a point of triumph, that doesn't make us immune to difficult times and that there are going to be times of tribulation in our lives. We're going to have our own Antiochus-like experiences like the Jewish people did as well. We're going to experience times of trouble. And I don't know if you caught it or not, folks, but I love how Peter even goes so far as to say, don't be surprised that something strange were happening to you. In other words, it's like he's saying, this is what followers of God experience in a fallen world that's not our home. So stop whining when these bad things happen to you. Stop asking the why question, because the why question is really easy. The why is that there's a mismatch between your redeemed, glorified soul and this fallen world of ours. And mismatches never work. And the day that you came to Christ, the day that you came into the kingdom, you now became an enemy of the evil things of this world. And so there's a battle brewing, both behind the scenes and even overtly in front of us. And we're to fight the battle. We're to walk with God. But get this. This world is not our home. And so in treating this world not as our home, there's going to be times of tribulation. We still have triumph, but it's triumph in the midst of tribulation. That's what the New Testament teaches you and me. And Peter's saying, stop being shocked that this is going to happen to you. It's the normal Christian experience for God's people. And that brings us to the third step. What do you do with that? You endure. I love it. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 36 and 39. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Then verse 39, We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their own souls. You know, it's a tender thing to me. You and I do ask the question, how long? And in asking the question, how long, if you've ever asked that of God, and I sure have, it belies the fact that we are enduring. Whenever you ask the question, how long, it belies the fact that you're in a persevering mode and you just want to know, God, when is this thing going to end? But don't ever miss the fact, because it's a good thing that you're asking that question and that you're enduring. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do. You're standing up in the midst of difficult times. You know, in a couple weeks here will be my three-year mark when I landed here at Scottsdale and became your senior pastor Within about six months of that time, we changed the vision of our church, not significantly. I called it a renewed vision so some of you wouldn't freak out, but we did change it enough so that, and I'm telling you that now in hindsight, anyways, enough so that it was something that would be fresh for us to latch onto. And if you've ever read the vision statement of our church, it's very meaningful to me because it drives me every day. And it's simply this, that we would become an organic community of Christ followers who are known for, who are marked by an unwavering faith in Christ and an unconditional love for those around us. I'm telling you, if we could attain those two things, there'd be no stopping us. An unwavering faith in Jesus Christ, a kind of faith that allows us to move forward in the midst of anything and everything, and then an unconditional love that would turn heads of people here in Scottsdale, Phoenix, wherever you live. And it's that unwavering faith thing that we're seeing here today under endurance, isn't it? I mean, without an unwavering faith, without an ability to trust God in the midst of anything and everything, and you will not endure. It's what's called for here. It's what Christians do. And I just got to tell you, I'm deeply impressed with how our people endure here. 
I don't have time to tell you the stories this morning, but I see lots and lots and lots of people here in our body go through difficult times and they trust God with everything in them during them. They understand what the psalmist said when he said that there's weeping in the night, but there's joy in the morning. And that leads us to the fourth part of this progression, and that's that God always brings us to a point of victory. You're saying, what's that about? Look at 1 John 5, verse 4. It says, for everyone who has been born of God, here it is, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So God always, eventually brings us around to a time of victory, brings us around to a time where we can look back and say, only God, he delivered me, he brought me through this. And the only caution that I'd give you under this, folks, I know some of you are tired at this point, but tune into this. The only caution I would give you here is to allow God to define victory for you, not you to dictate to God what victory means. Amen? I see a lot of Christians do that. I see a lot of Christians say, I want victory. Here's what it looks like, God. Come through in my life. And I sit there and go, you haven't quite read the Bible if you think that way. Because the reality is God says you're going to have victory, but the victory is going to be defined the way he chooses to bring victory to your life. So what do we mean by that? Well, there's sometimes that you and I look at God and we say, okay, God, victory means you will change my circumstances. You will pull, pull a fast one. You will do this, this, and this in my life. And God says, no, I think I'm going to keep you in that circumstance, give you peace, joy, purpose, and pleasure in the midst of it and a deep sense of my presence, and we're going to label that victory. And the question you and I have to wrestle with, is that enough? Is that victory? I think it is. There's lots of circumstances in my life right now that I want changed that aren't. But God comes through in ministering to my spirit, giving me a deep sense of his purpose and power and pleasure in my life, and that's victory. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes he will change our circumstances. Sometimes he won't, and he calls that victory as well. And so please see, folks, see the power of Daniel 8 in our lives today, this perpetual representation that just like they went from triumph to tribulation to endurance to victory, you and I are on the same path. You know, there's so much more here, Daniel, I want to show you. I felt this week when I was putting together my message that I'm giving you guys like 5% of what's in this chapter here. I really do. In fact, we didn't even talk about the fact that for the first time in the entire Bible up to this point, an angel is named. Did you catch that? His name is Gabriel here. And Gabriel would appear two other times in the Bible. One to the virgin, you guys are really good, Mary, and then to Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's dad. And then there's only other, one other angel mentioned in the entire Bible. His name is Michael. Good, you saw the movie. Anyways, and Michael was mentioned at the end of the New Testament there. And so, again, angels aren't mentioned by name very often. They're mentioned here in Daniel 8, and that's kind of cool. And there's so many other things I want to share with you about this, but just one last thought, because we're down to the short strokes here as we wrap up this idea of the pattern or progression that we see. And the thought is simply this, that what hit me this week is that as we finally get this idea of triumph to tribulation to endurance to victory, it is possible for Christians to jump ship, to get out of the ring at any one point. And when we do, we do so to our own peril. That's the thought I wanted to leave you with. Because I see Christians do this way too often. I see Christians at any one point in this progression say, I've had enough, I'm not doing it anymore, I'm getting out of the ring. 
Some want to exist in a perpetual state of triumph, and so they deny or avoid all of their tribulations. You ever met somebody like that or been that yourself? I have. There's times where you minimize your, your marital problems. You minimize your temptation with sin. You minimize your children who are rebelling. You, you, you avoid those things at all costs, try to live in some Pollyanna la-la land, and you miss going through the tribulation, but it's what God wants you to go through to get to the other side. We see that tunnel of chaos. We say, I'm not going through it, and we try to stay here, but we miss what God has for us. Then I know other people who are pretty good at going into the tribulation because you have to, and they got right theology and they understand that. But then in the midst of their tribulation, isn't it interesting, they, they take control themselves and they try to manipulate it and fix it with all of their fleshly energy. I see Christians do that all the time. We're so good at doing that. We basically say, I'm going to fix my marriage. I'm going to get that kid straightened out. I'm going to make this financial thing work out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Before you know it, we fall into that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, and it's all about us, and, and, and we're messing with the whole tribulation process instead of falling on our knees and, and trusting God. And then there's those who, who, who don't avoid tribulation, and they, they don't try to live in triumph, and they go through it, and they start to endure. And this is probably the most common one, is that eventually, instead of asking how long, they look at God and they say, too long, too long. I've been there. There's times where I've looked at God and I've said, too long, God. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm not enduring. I'm checking out. And you stop having quiet times. You stop going to small group. You might avoid church for a little bit. And pretty soon your heart grows cold and you're just checking out on God. And you know the cool thing about His grace is that He loves you so much, He stays with you. But you've turned your back on Him. And for months, maybe years at a time, you check out on God instead of enduring and persevering. And, and, and the good thing is most Christians, because at least my theology says that it's the perseverance of the saints, most Christians eventually turn back to God, and they finally make their way back home like the prodigal. And, and when they come back, you know what they almost always say, and I hear this probably weekly, is they'll say, how stupid was that? How stupid was that of me turning my back on God for all that time, wasting all of those moments? I can't believe that I did that. You don't want to do that. You don't want to jump ship. You see, it's a temptation we all have. We get the progression, but because we're not courageous or faith-filled or trusting enough of God, we don't want to go through it. And yet, without going through it, you'll never see his movement in your life. My prayer for Scottsdale Bible Church, we get about 5,000 believers who call this place home every Sunday, is that I would love to see you guys rise up and become the kind of church that understands triumph, that goes through tribulation, that endures seeing a better day, and then ends up in a place of victory looking back and saying, only God. I'd like us to see the prophecy of Daniel 8 come true for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your goodness and your grace are never spared from us at all. And that as we sang about earlier in that famous song, Blessed Be the Name, that even during difficult Job-like times, we bless your name. We call you good because you are. And Father, that's indeed the process that we're realizing here in Daniel 8 that's so true for us today that what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals when it comes to being a follower of Jesus are those who can go from triumph to tribulation to endurance and on to victory. And so Father, as Troy mentioned earlier, I know that there are some people here this morning that are really hurting and Lord, our hearts go out to them. 
And so, Lord, if there are some that are right in that tribulation enduring spot, we pray, God, your richest blessing and grace upon them, that, God, you would give them a spirit, your Holy Spirit within, that causes them to endure and to hang in there, realizing there's weeping in the night, but the joy is around the corner. And, Lord, may not their, may not their question of how long become a statement of too long. May they continue to trust. God, we thank you for the rest of us who might be in a state of triumph or victory today. May we not take that for granted. May we just thank you for the respite you've given us. May you prepare us for whatever lies ahead. Lord, whatever happens, we trust you. We know you're good. You can be no other. You've shown us that in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the Old and in the New Testament. And we thank you for your word. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week for Daniel chapter 9.